We begin today as we uh, so clearly sang this morning uh, about confession. And uh, we begin by saying that there are things in our hearts, of course, that no one but God's can see. And one of those things that we are going to talk about today is a condition that all of us wrestle with. I wish to, that I could say, you know, I know some people don't wrestle with this. I've got some people that are really on it that they have this sense of like, wow, they have mastered that. But that is not, that is not true. It's what I'm going to call spiritual halitosis. Uh, the fancy name for bad breath. <laughs> spiritual bad breath. Now, <clears throat> on a given morning, including this morning, You'll be thankful to know that I have a, an oral routine. That oral routine begins with flossing. And then I have an electric toothbrush that I use. I have a regular toothbrush that I follow up with. I have a tongue brush. And I use my tongue brush faithfully. And, uh, uh, and uh, then I follow it up with mouthwash. I put a little gas in and then I light her up. And I'm ready to go. There is nothing living inside my mouth right now that shouldn't be there. Thank you. <laughs> now, after I speak for a given amount of time, that may just be reversed. So I keep uh, Tic Tacs and uh, things in my in my pocket. And bad breath is one of those things that everybody knows it except you. Have you ever noticed that? You're the last one to know. And uh, what happens there is that uh, you know so you'll eat something, and so uh, for example, I make this hummus. That is really amazing hummus. But in order to be amazing, you got to put enough garlic that has a kick to it. And man, I'm going to tell you, I, I could just eat it and eat it. And then, then my wife walks in and I'm like, what have you been eating? You're like, what? What? Because, you know, it's all inside of you. You can't tell that it's not coming out the right way, you know, to somebody else. There is a spiritual bad breath that everyone recognizes except us. Because it's so subtle and it lives within. It is such a... It is such a condition that is not light. It is serious. It is a condition that has and will wreck relationships. Not only with other people, perhaps people you don't know so well because they can sniff it even from a distance, but even the closest relationships that we have. And not only the closest relationships we have with other people, but it will wreck your relationship with God, as we will see today. What am I talking about? It's something you'll recognize, all of us. It's a hard word, pride. Pride is, is a deathly condition that we all have that's all part of us that we wish. We wish we could scrub enough and floss enough and mouthwash enough that we like, oh, I'm finally free from pride. Because the minute you say, yes, I'm free from pride, then you're probably being proud. The word in, in the Bible for pride, there are actually in the Old Testament, there are many words. But when you get to the New Testament, it's even a clear word. And the word is a descriptive word. And it means the stretching of one's neck. In a cloud of smoke. Isn't that interesting? Pride is that thing that makes us rare up, but we're in smoke and so we can't even figure it out ourselves. It is a dangerous condition, so much worse than physical bad breath. It is a dangerous condition because we're reminded in the Bible that pride goes before destruction, that it is the prelude 
to absolute catastrophe in your life. In other words, don't take it lightly. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It has taken down many a man and many a great man. In the Bible, you might remember King Saul, the first king of Israel. Pride took him down. You might remember Nebuchadnezzar. He was the king of Babylon, powerful in, in, his, in his leadership. And yet it was pride that took him down. King Herod, pride took him down. The Pharisees, pride took him down. Judas, pride took him down. There's a repeated clear pattern with all these men. The thing that about pride is this, that there are some things that God just doesn't like. But when it comes to pride, he actually finds it detestable. That he hates pride. In the book of Proverbs, God lists this pretty heavy list. He said, here's some things I hate. And the way it's even begun, it's here's six things that I hate. No, let's make it seven. That's a, a Hebrew way of saying, man, these are things that God just like, I can't stand these things. And to top the list, watch what happens here. Proverbs 6 and verse 16. There are six things the Lord hates. Seven that are detestable to him. A proud look. The very first thing on the list here is that, that's, that, that he hates his pride. So you got to ask the question, why is it? I mean, there's things that, you know, that, that we do that God would say, you know, that just, that's just not good. But why is it that he hates pride so much? Here's the proposal to you. God hates pride so much because it was the very thing that fractured the security and the peace of heaven. You see, before the creation was was made as we know it in heaven we know that that there's there's something happened that that happened to the most beautiful creature that god made his name was lucifer now we we think of lucifer as you know in in dark terms and and it's a term that seems ah oh, you know but not in the day you see back in the day in eternity lucifer lucifer was the most beautiful creature of heaven when you look at the description, he had the ability to create music. He had the, this, this splendor about him. Watch this. We find out about him in Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 12. You were the model of perfection, speaking of Lucifer, full of wisdom and perfect and beauty. But in verse 17, see, your heart became proud on account of your beauty, Lucifer. And you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to earth. In other words, God said, I've made you so beautiful and you have the, so much ability and all that are looking up to you. And what happened in, in those moments is that you can read it in Isaiah 14 and to hear more in Ezekiel 28 where Lucifer said, I will ascend to the throne. I will. And there were five times he said, I, I, I. And he became proud. His neck strained to a place that he had pride. And in the book of Job, we're told that he is the king of all those who have pride. He said, I will be like the most high. This created being suddenly believed because his pride had overtaken him, that he could be on equal terms as God it's no wonder that God hates pride so much. It was the very seed that fractured heaven. And when God threw a, a, a Lucifer to earth, his name changed as the rebellious one, as we know Satan. And we know from the book of Revelation that he took one third of all the angels in heaven. No wonder God hates pride.
Then Adam and Eve were created in beauty in a peaceful setting. And Satan came, Lucifer came to them. And you might remember the words that he whispered to Eve. The same words in pr- of, of pride that he uttered in heaven that caused heaven to fracture. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 5, when Lucifer was speaking to, to Eve, he said, for God knows if you eat the fruit, eat of this, this tree of, uh, uh, that God told you not to eat from, that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. And psst, Eve, strain your neck a little bit. You will be like God. Just think of it. Just think of all the, of all the reputation. Think of all, all the things that you can do. You'll be like God. And she goes, ooh, in that moment, in that moment, ooh, I believe I could. Wouldn't that be awesome? Crunch. No wonder God hates pride. It fractured heaven. It absolutely turned it up on its hill and it fractured humanity from then until now and it's still going. It was the cause of God having to send His Son to earth and have Him suffer and die at the hands of human beings. Pride was this. So when we read these the, these words, we think, of course God hates pride. Doesn't that make sense? I would too if I were Him. Now as we begin to talk about pride... We all know that it comes in different formats, do we not? There are things that cause us to be proud. Let's talk about the obvious ones first. Sometimes our smarts can. Oh, man, I, I, I got this down. I know more than anybody else. Sometimes it's our achievements, the things that we've earned, the degrees hanging on our walls. Sometimes it's those things that, like ability. I come from the music world. My goodness, you see a lot of uh, of, of strained necks in the music world, of those who can play extremely well. It happens in sports. It happens in the arts. It happens in all. Sometimes it's fame. Sometimes it's money. Sometimes it's the things that we own and others don't. There are more subtle things that, w- that can happen to us that cause pride, spiritual knowledge that, oh, man, I know a lot about the Bible. Sometimes when we uh, physically, we we're, we are some some of us are very attractive. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. You're like, who are you talking about? Some people work out. I work out. And there's sometimes, you know, you find yourself. I don't know if you've ever got caught posing in the mirror. I got to admit, I have, I have to confess. I'm like, looking good. And everybody says, what? Where is it? What are you talking about? What's looking good? Sometimes, so all these things are things we've done and things we excel, but careful, there are more subtle things. There are some people that are more Eeyore, and in their downness, it becomes pride that they're always talking about themselves. And even in the things they complain about, oh, I'm going to talk about, whoop, it's back to you again. When you begin to look at, at pride and, and, and begin to look at all the subtleties and how God hates it, then we must, we're driven to say, well, God, we, we've got to talk about it. So we're going to. And we're going to talk about it quite a long time, actually. But I don't know about you, but I'm not sure I want to talk about pride all that much. I would rather talk about the solution to pride. Because there is an antidote to it. We can kick ourselves all day long, but I don't need too many more kicks. 
What I'm looking for in the scripture is to identify by truth what the problem is. We don't want to scurf over that. But we don't want to just lay there either and just wallow in our badness. Because I believe that the Bible gives hope. The Bible gives strength. The Bible gives direction. The Bible gives us a voice that says God can empower you to have a sense of strength and and victory over certain things in our life. Otherwise, why did Christ come? Why did Christ issue the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives? The antidote to, to pride may come as a surprise or maybe not. Because pride is so powerful, you would expect something to be like, oh man, it's going to take something supersonic, something nuclear to overcome this. And yet it's something that surprises many people. The antidote to pride is humility. It's humility. Watch. In Proverbs chapter 11, verse 2. Look at the contrast of how God puts this. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But the opposite with humility comes wisdom. You notice how he contrasts. He didn't contrast it with kindness. He could have said that. You know, with, with pride comes disgrace, but kindness, that it, that it kind of gets you there. Or with love, or with uh, doing good things, or all those things. No, here is the antidote to pride. It is humility. You see, Christ came and he said, let me turn some things upside down. He turned quite a few things upside down. He said, let me turn a few things upside down for you. Let's talk about What is truly great? Jesus said these words in Luke chapter 9, verse 48. He said, the one who is least among all of you, that is the one that's great. The word for least there in the Greek is mekros, M-I-K-R-O-S, mekros. We might say micros, like microscopic. What Jesus is saying, if you want to be great, then you need to become more microscopic. You need to become smaller. Many of you might know the name Jim Collins. He wrote a very well-known book now in the business world called From Good to Great. He interviewed many corporations, many CEOs, observed them, counseled with them, consulted with them. And at the end of the day, he began to say, let me give you some characteristics that I see a pattern in of great leaders. Those leaders that are leading just companies in a way that is effective. It's not like everybody's snip snapping to what their, what their rhythm is and everybody's afraid of them. That's not great leadership. But leaders that can cause people to want to do something great. Leaders of CEOs that, that inspire. Leaders that, that encourage. Leaders that truly take people, not as just employees, but people and make them from good to great. He said, let me list all the character qualities. They're, they're driven, they're on time, they're articulate, they're all these things. But at the top of the list, after interviewing and observing and consulting CEOs all across the world, Jim Collins said, I'll tell you the number one quality of a great leader. You can guess it, right? Humility. Humility. If you don't have that, you'll never be great, Jesus said. It is the mark of greatness. This is exactly what, what Jesus is referring to. But before we get too far, perhaps we ought to define humility and begin by what it's not. And, a, and we could spend the whole morning on it, but let me just say shortly this. The humility is not being a doormat. Humility is not being a place where everybody walks over you. 
God knows in the, in the Christian culture, we don't need any more of that, particularly in the male uh, department of the Christian church. It doesn't mean that we become passive. It doesn't mean Jesus was far from that. He was a warrior in his heart, and yet he was humble, as we're going to see. He was, he was one that understood the greatness of humility. What, what humbleness is, what humility is in a nutshell, is, let's call it deference to other people, selflessness. C.S. Lewis, he nailed it in this tremendous simplistic definition. Watch. C.S. Lewis says this. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Can I say that again? It's worth saying, isn't it? It's kind of worth like, hmm, I need to sit on the hillside and think about that for a second. Humility is not thinking of yourself, not thinking less of yourself like, ah, I'm just worth nothing. But it's thinking of yourself less. Tim Keller is a a, a pretty well-known pastor in New York City. He's got an interesting book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. Very short book. And in this book, he does an interesting study. He said, you know, when it came to the 20th century, we began to to talk a lot about low esteem and how it's affecting society. But he said, before that, we talked about the deadliness of high esteem, too high of esteem. Now, maybe you can find a verse in the Bible, but not many verses say you need to think more highly of yourself. In fact, it's pretty much the opposite of that. Don't think too highly of yourself. In fact, Romans chapter 12 and verse 3 says this. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself. Think of your breath with sober judgment. Perhaps you might want to ask somebody, how's my breath? How was it? Is that right? Okay, thanks. Cool. Would you be honest if it weren't? No, it's Sunday morning. No, okay, all right. I get it. You have to ask somebody and get close enough to them and say, how's the pride factor here? Because we not, may not pick up on it. So now watch. Over the next weeks, a lot of weeks, we're going to talk about the power of humility. And how practically, because when you talk about pride and when you talk about humility, it can really kind of stay at that higher stratosphere, that conceptual. And like, okay, what are we talking about here? So over the next coming weeks, what we're going to do is talk about practical ways that we can engage humility. Because I believe that there are some times where we have to act first. We have to put ourselves in a, in a position where we're, learning because we're doing it we're learning it because you know i'm struggling with pride so therefore i'm going to to do this it may be that you let's take a very simple illustration for example you may say you know i don't serve enough at home so even though i don't feel like it i'm going to start emptying the dishwasher i'm going to start doing something i'm going to start cleaning the garage no i'm not going to do that i'm going to start the dishwasher let's go back to that one whatever that you you start doing it And then you become that as you're doing it. Too often, we want to get it all down in the classroom first. And then we think, well, once I get it down, then I'll I'll do it. I think there are practical ways, and that's where we're going to spend our time. Before we get into that, I may frustrate you today. And I'm frustrating you because before we say, okay, what's the first one? I'm ready to go. We'll get to that next week. 
The reason I'm delaying the first practical thing is because here at 360, we often ask this question before we engage in anything. And the question is why? Why humility? Why is it important? Why should we even be talking about it? I mean, when you look at all these these uh, verses and kind of have an understanding that God hates it and they fractured heaven and it fractured uh, earth and it took a good many people down and it comes before destruction and all those things. I mean, why would we talk about humility? Those may be those may be good enough reasons. But we could say, well, is is humility just a, a good character to have, you know, like kindness or generosity? I mean, is, is it just that? I think the answer is no. Humility should be at the top of our list since Jesus said, if you want to aim towards greatness, it's got to be it's got to be up at that level. And for that reason, I believe that it's important for us to say, then let's answer this question today. Why it's important now. I like to tell you when we're going to jump in the deep end here for a second, and we're about to. What I mean by that is put your thinking cap on. Because to answer the question of why humility is important, we must first understand who God is at his very core. I didn't say what God does. I didn't say what God likes, but who God is at his very core as the God of the Bible. Because in this culture, there are many different views of who God is, and and we sometimes paint our image of who God is rather than us being made in God's image. So we must stand back and say, then, how in the world would we find out about who the core of God is? If you read in the Old Testament, you might be challenged to really understand the core of God. You may, there are some, certainly some depth there, but when you look at how God manifests himself in the Old Testament, it ranges from mysterious to scary, does it not? He appears in pillars of fire and, in, and this glory uh, 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 that falls down. There's smoke, there's clouds, there, there are times where it, it, it's like, wow, can I even get close to this kind of God? He dwells in this temple or this tabernacle in the Old Testament where only the elite of the elite could go in. The high priest of the priest. If you're not a priest, don't even sign up. But the, the high priest, that only that person could go in. And everybody else, of course, is wondering, like, wow, I wonder what God's like. Because I, I can't quite get in the back room there. The Old Testament, the God of the Old Testament, by the way, is still the same God of the New Testament. He didn't change all of a sudden. But we had a clearer picture of who he was because of the profound appearance of God on earth in the body of the man Christ Jesus. Now, here's where we go deep. In the book of Hebrews, which don't take it without, don't read it without taking to Advil, because it, 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 it literally is, it, it causes you to, to, to dive down deep. But when you read the book of Hebrews, it begins to explain a lot of things that have happened up to this place. Now watch this. In Hebrews chapter 11, in verse 1, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. If you have your Bible, you might want to turn there with me because this is worth laying your eyes on if you have it in your hands, but it also will be on the screen. In the past, this writer of Hebrews says, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets and at many times, at many times and in various ways. Now, what is he talking about? The Old Testament. 
This is the writer of the New Testament. The book of Hebrews, if you don't know the Bible, is actually near the end of the New Testament. He's referring back to the Old Testament. He said, okay, up to this point, we have known God through the speaking of these prophets, and he has made himself known through various ways. Verse 2, but in these last days, post-Jesus, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. He's telling us something. So now we get to know the same God, but in a different way, through different eyes. Verse 3, here it comes. Put your bathing cap on. We're jumping deep. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. In other words, it reminds us of when Jesus said, when you have seen me, you've seen the Father. You understand now what, what jazzes me. You understand now what makes me kick over tables. You understand what makes me weep. You understand the things that, that, that cause me to get, get frustrated. You understand the things that bring me to my knees. You see that all, all these things. So the writer of Hebrews said, now you get a clearer picture of this God. When we talk about Jesus, it is surprising to me that the various opinions about Jesus. I just heard this interview. You know, when people go on the street and they interview people, hey, who do you say Jesus is? People of no faith, people of, the, of other faiths and whatnot and their opinions. I, I, I listened into those conversations. And I'm absolutely shocked of, of because Jesus is what he said he was or he's not. No in-between. He's a good teacher, but I don't believe he was God's son. Well, then he wasn't a good teacher. He said he was a son of God, and that's what he was teaching. And if he wasn't teaching something, if he's teaching a lie, how can he be a good teacher? That doesn't make sense. Well, I believe he was a prophet, but I don't believe he was the Savior. Well, he prophesied things about salvation and foretold things in the future. But oh, see, it doesn't make sense. So if you're exploring today and you're trying to find God, I empathize with that journey. It took me many years and I intentionally, I intentionally looked hard and, 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 and uh, put a lot of effort into it. And if you're, if you're in that boat today, way to go, way to go that you're looking for God and that, and with that much effort and that much muscle. May I invite you into the world of Jesus Christ, perhaps not what you've heard on TV, perhaps not what you've seen in the movie, but the Jesus Christ of the Scripture who, is being, who claims to be God in the flesh, who claimed to be equal with God because he was God in the flesh, who claimed to be the Savior of the, of the world, who claimed that, only, that he was the only way to the Father, who claimed to be, as the Scripture would say, the exact representation of, of the living God. That is the Christ of the Bible. And if you're willing to embrace him. You will find God. God is alive. But here's the deal. When Christ walked the earth. And what we're being told is. We get a different picture of God. Look at the picture of God. When it comes to this big word. We call the Trinity. Now the Trinity is a word that. I, I often want to say. Oh let's talk about something else. Because. It's like a thermometer in my brain. I can feel it like my capacity is like just three minutes in. I'm like, okay, I'm out. That's Steve's capacity. When, it talk, when we begin to talk about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
three distinctive persons of the Godhead, but still, God, have I blown your mind yet? We have one God of the Bible, but he expresses himself and appears in different ways through the Holy Spirit, through his son, Jesus Christ, and, the, the, and the, through, the, through, the, through the Father in heaven. Now, when you open this, that's going to be real hard to understand. So without getting too complex, here's what I want us to see. The interaction of the Father, the Holy Spirit, and the Son in the New Testament, where we're seeing a clear picture of who God really is at his core. That's, that's our question. Who is God at his core? Here's what I want you to see as we look at these pictures. I want you to see the humility of God. The humility of God. Now let's say, I brought, I brought a, a little prop in for you today. And hopefully you can see it there in the back. If you can't, sit up front. Just kidding. All right, just kidding. All right. Let's say, for example, this is one person, uh, uh, one dimension of God. <clears throat> and uh, I'm afraid to draw any images because, you know, we're, we're, uh, we have no idea what God looks like. I could give my best shot at Jesus, you know, with the beard and everything. But, uh, but let's just say this is a, the Father or let's say this is the Holy Spirit or let's say the, the, this is Jesus, Okay. What you see when you look at the exact representation of God through Jesus are the following things. When one speaks of the other, it is always, always selfless. It is always in humility. Let me give you a few examples. It's as if each, of, each person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is standing behind the other doing this. Look, it's called deference. I defer to someone else. Not weakness, not weakness, but humility is thinking of yourself less, not thinking less of yourself, remember? And Jesus is not thinking less of himself. He's just thinking of himself less. He's saying, oh, let me tell you something. I'll be right back, by the way. I'm, 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 I want to point to someone else. So watch the following things. When the Father, when, when Jesus was baptizing, being baptized, and the Father speaks from heaven, he says these words, he says, and a voice came from heaven, this is my Son, whom I love, and with Him I am well pleased. See, God could have said, it's my Son, but, you know, He's junior. He doesn't get the same attention. Do not give Him the same attention. He, he, he's not as much as I, but He said, no. I want you to know, everybody, I want you to know, I want you to pay attention to him. You see the humility of the Father. And then Jesus, he, at the end of his life in John chapter 14, he says, look, I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I am. Not me, but my Father is greater. And, and then in John, um, in John chapter 12, he says, whatever I say is just what the Father has told me. Let's look at the Spirit. But when he, Jesus is speaking about the Spirit of God, when he, the Spirit of truth, he will guide you into truth. You know, a lot of times when people leave, they're like, I want you to make sure that I've left a legacy and you don't forget that I've done a lot here, right? All those things. Jesus is saying, no, he's going to point you into truth. 
Watch. He says, um, he will guide you into tr truth. He will not speak on his own. He will only speak of what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. You see, when we look at, at, at God through the picture, through the lenses of Jesus, what we see is a picture. If someone asks you, hey, I wonder what God looks like. Here's what God looks like. You get it? What a beautiful picture. Now, I just want you to imagine for a second. I have two boys at, at home. They're 11 and 12. We took a little road trip yesterday. And, and as boys would do, they, they tussle. Mm -hmm. I know, it's hard to believe. And mom and dad are like, stop it. You know, if you're parent, stop it. It begins to elevate. Stop it. <laughs> and so you're like, okay, I'm pulling this car over right now. If you don't, you've been there with your parents. Can you imagine, just for a second, I want you to imagine with me. Can you imagine the father and the son? tussling wouldn't it blow your mind i mean wouldn't it blow your mind to think that like jesus just for a second just you know how we do the subtle pride that we have we just say it in christianese terms you know hey i'm saying what my father told me to say you know i guess he knows best you know just one little one little of that you know just a look of man we'll go with that <laughs> can you imagine can you imagine, say, you know, the Holy Spirit is coming, you know, I'm going to be gone. It's going to help the Holy Spirit now. It's not quite like having me here, but. <laughs> Where you just, you sniff, you detect there's something going on up there that ain't right. The answer is zero. What to God as parents, we would experience zero, right? Just one day. Zero, 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 zero. In other words, he is perfectly humble. This is our God. Perfectly humble. Not a sniff. Watch this. Psalm 113, verse 5. Who is like our God, who is enthroned on high, yet who humbles himself to look on things in earth and on earth? Jesus said in Matthew 11, take my yoke upon you and learn from me is the representation, the exact representation of the mysterious God in heaven. I want you to know that I am gentle and I am humble in heart. That is who God is at his core. Now, when I read these words, now we can answer the question why it's important for us. And let me give you a a quick picture of why it's important for us to study and exercise and engage and fight for humility. My wife and I, when we first were married, we lived in Daytona Beach. We lived right on A1A right there across the street from the beach. And we would bike every single day on the beach and walk and just wonderful. Our first, the first time we bought bikes, 
we were so excited and we biked and biked and biked and biked man we i bet you we biked for 15 miles man we were going down the beach we went past the boardwalk and way way south and because we lived kind of in the northern part in the peninsula and oh man it was just fantastic until we turned around and what we didn't realize is we were going are you ready with the wind because we were going with the wind we didn't even realize we were going with the wind we just thought we were good <laughs> and then when we made it didn't take honestly 10 seconds until we had the scooby-doo retro and now it took us forever I, honestly first day we had the bikes we were tempted to sell them to anyone we could find hey want a good deal on a bike Give it to you, $39. I bought it for $100. No, no problem. The challenge with pride is that it goes against a God who is purely humble. It is going into the wind. He resists it. Psalm 138, verse 6. Though the Lord is on high, He looks upon the lonely, but the proud He knows from afar. Why? Because pride fractured heaven and earth, and I hate it. It's a crosswind. Remember, Lucifer got thrown out. Adam and Eve got thrown out. I can't withstand it because I'm purely humble, he said. Nebuchadnezzar was a, a, a great king. In James chapter 4, we, we get this feel of a description of a guy like Nebuchadnezzar. James 4, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Nebuchadnezzar built this huge tower. And God said, I can't, I can't let you go on like that, son. And he brought him down. He went insane for seven years. He ate grass like wild animals, we're told. And after all that was over, and he came to his, simple, his senses and humbly came back to God, we read these words in autobiographical style. He says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Now on the other flip side of that coin is that God is attracted to humility. That's why we want to study it. Have you noticed that he chose Bethlehem? We're told in the prophet Micah that Bethlehem was the smallest of the, of the clans of Judah. Yet out of that, out of Bethlehem, this little clan, this little humble place, Christ would be born. You remember Jesus then came out of uh, Nazareth and everybody said, well, can anything good come out of that? God picked the humble city. He picked his disciples from Galilee and they were rough around the edges. And I, I lived in Boston for, the, uh, for a while. In Boston, at least when I lived there, there was a place called Dorchester. Only if you're from there, it's Dorchester. And, 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 and that was like, oh man, Galilee was like Dorchester. It was like South Boston where it's like, man, it's pretty rough. It's where you see all the movies and the gangster movies and all that. It was tough. This is where Jesus said, I'm going to go Bethlehem. I'm going to go Nazareth. I'm going to go Galilee because I'm attracted to humility. It's why I picked a guy like David. It's why he accentuated a little widow who had one coin. It's why he, he looked in his disciples. He said, I'm going to pick the common guy because I'm looking for something that I know will not cause him to crash. It's got to be, there's got to be a, an understanding of humility with the people 
that I choose. Watch Psalm 25. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them in his way. Can I put it in my language? He gets in rhythm with those who are humble. In other words, sometimes you don't even know he's there because you're riding with the wind and not against it. Oh, you'll know. You'll know if you turn around and you face the wind of God over and over and over. Watch this. Isaiah chapter 66 and verse 1. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Don't know if you guys noticed, but God is saying, I got the penthouse view. Has my, not, has my hand not made all these things, and so they came into being, declares the Lord? This is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble. You see, I'm up here in all this majesty, and I'm looking, I'm looking for someone that I can be in rhythm with. He is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Now, unbeknownst to you this morning... As we close today, unbeknownst to you, I've had a picture of you in this room. There is a picture of you right here, right now, in this room. You may not recognize yourself, but you are in this picture. And it puts ourselves in the perspective of who we really are when we read that God is and heaven and earth is in his footstool. Do you see the picture, by the way? Anybody see the picture? You see, this picture here was uh, taken from outer space. And those lines across there are just lens flares. You know, when you have certain kind of light that kind of creates it. And in the top one, you see that, that beam, that light beam. And about... Two-thirds of the way over from the left to the right. You see that little dot? Now, you know what that dot is by now, right? It's a footstool. It's a footstool for God. That is the planet Earth. Therefore, as we begin our journey in humility, I hope you understand how greatly important this conversation is. That pride has taken down many a good man and woman. That pride fractured heaven. That pride fractured all of humanity. That God appropriately detested. But not, let's not stay there. God loves the humble. God loves, God gives wind to the humble. From up high on heaven, he looks down and says, ah, yeah. Let's, I can roll with that. I can roll with Nazareth. I can roll with Bethlehem. I can roll with a, with a Bethlehem heart. I can roll with that. So as our prayer, we pray the words today as we begin this journey of John the Baptist who said these words and prayed. He must become greater. He must become greater. In other words... This is the prayer. He must become greater. I must become micro. Micro. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you, God, for who you are. 
so powerful in nature and yet humble at heart. So majestic in scope. Our minds can't even span the universe, God, much less span its creator. And yet, Father, as we see in the exact representation of Jesus, that you defer. You do not point to yourself in a selfish way. So, Father, for that reason, it is important for us to learn humility and to, to walk with you. So as we begin, begin this journey, Father, very simply we say, God, help us through the power of the Spirit of God and through the power of engaging practical ways of humility. Help us, God, to allow you to become greater and allow us to become micros, smaller. And in doing that, God, our relationships will change. Our relationship with you will change. Our, our testimony to the world will be more effective as we'll see along this journey. So many benefits of the power of humility. God, begin your work today in our hearts, our minds, as we begin to ruminate over the power of humility. In the name of the most humble one, Jesus. Amen.